Last Sunday, we looked at Jesus' final admonition, encouragement to Nicodemus, where he laid out the necessity of repentance. You remember we had that three-week series called uh, True Signs of uh, Conversion. We looked at the new birth, the new faith, and uh, the new love, which is repentance. So we kind of wrapped up that whole section in John 3 last week. This morning, I'm excited to say that we're going to look at John the Baptist's final testimony and close out chapter 3. So we'll be wrapping up chapter 3 today. And uh, this is not to say that John the Baptist did not continue to witness to Jesus. This is just, in the Gospel of John, John's account of his basic last testimony. After, after this section, John the Baptist, and he's been dominating the first three chapters of of John's gospel. He, we've seen him in chapter 1 just about everywhere, but after this, he kind of just tapers off and disappears. His name is mentioned a few other times later by Jesus, but that's it. There's no more testimony. So I think that's what is meant by his final testimony. It's right here in this text. Uh, just to get you up to speed, John the Baptist was a precursor uh, to Jesus. He came before Jesus to prepare the people for the arrival of Jesus, for the arrival of Messiah. And uh, he had, his whole ministry was uh, based on that idea. It was to get, you know, preach repentance and, and help the people see their sins and waywardness and, and baptize them and, and get them all ready for the arrival of Messiah for Jesus. And interestingly, with John the Baptist, he's like the only prophet to actually, uh, his ministry, to dovetail with that of Jesus. All the other Old Testament-type prophets proclaimed Jesus way in advance and never got to see him. But John the Baptist got to publicly identify him right out in the open and did ministry side-by-side with Jesus. So, So he's a precursor. He was a prophet who came before Jesus to announce Jesus, and he actually got to work side-by-side alongside of Jesus, if you want to put it that way, getting the people ready. But... Once Jesus' ministry really gained traction, he became known and people began, were beginning to go to him, that was the point, the critical point where John the Baptist's ministry was to kind of die out and go away. Uh, so his ministry is a precursor, it sets the stage for Jesus, and once Jesus gets moving and going and people are coming to him, then John the Baptist is supposed to just kind of fade out, Right? And we know that if you read the Gospels, you see that he did more. He faded out pretty quick. He was beheaded. So that's one way to stop a ministry. Uh, But that's the idea. He comes and does his thing, setting the stage, getting it ready. Jesus takes over. And this passage that we're looking at today, 22 through 36, it really kind of marks the beginning of this transition from John to Jesus. I like to think of it as the passing of a baton in a relay race. John the Baptist had run his ministry laps, and now he passes the baton to Jesus so that he can uh, finish and win the race. So you can think of it like that. One guy's running, he's doing the gospel running, and he hands off the baton. Now Jesus the Messiah has it, so one's going off the field, the other one's doing the lap. So that kind of gives you a, a, an imaginary kind of image in your mind of what this looks like. And, and it's important to note that John the Baptist understood God's plan. He understood who he was and his role and his ministry, and he understood who Jesus is and Jesus' role and Jesus' ministry. 
he was not conflicted about these things. He understood what he was to do and how he was to kind of drift off. And this passage captures that. It shows that he knew exactly what he was doing. It also shows that people around him did not know what was going on and had a big-time problem with what was playing out. John the Baptist knew that Jesus' ministry would overtake his ministry. He knew it. He knew it would outgrow it, and he would kind of dissipate and go away. And quite frankly, he rejoiced. He rejoiced over this. This didn't come as a surprise to him. He knew the plan, and he rejoiced that his Lord and Master was gaining traction. As I said, though, uh, there were others that did not feel the same way. Some of his disciples in particular, they did not share the same sentiment. They did not agree with what was happening. They had a hard time with John the Baptist kind of drifting off and Jesus, you know, kind of exploding. They had a really, really hard time with this. And when they saw Jesus's ministry surpass that of their rabbi, John the Baptist, uh, they just became fearful and probably worried about their jobs. Well, his church is outgrowing yours. What are we going to do? What does that mean for you, John? That's how they respond to this situation. They had fear and trepidation and worry. And as soon as they see, they see it themselves on the other side of a river where they're all baptizing and everyone's going to Jesus and they flip out and run over to John the Baptist and they warn him. But John the Baptist's response to them, his final testimony is incredible. His words to them, his correction to them, his attitude toward them, all of it is just spectacular. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to actually look at three S's. I've been giving you letters every week. Uh, We're going to look at the setting, the situation, and then most importantly, we're going to look at the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of Christ. Let's pray before we get to work. Father in heaven, we humble ourselves now and we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the singing and the songs and the, and the doctrinal theological content of the songs that have helped to soften and prepare our hearts. I especially like the last song we sang. It's not a big theology song, but it's a song that it's just us crying out to you and inviting you to come closer to us, to speak to us. And so that's what we ask for today, Lord. Uh, and may you be glorified during this time of worship. This is just one more facet of worship here on a Sunday morning. We worship you through listening and taking notes and through the proclamation of the gospel. And so be worshiped here today and uh, take the Holy Spirit, Lord, and, and apply him in such a way that we become different. That Maybe some of us in this room don't even know Jesus yet and that you would enable us, you would empower us, and you would give us a new birth so that we can know Jesus by faith and that we would turn from all lesser gods and idols and things. Just firmly embrace Jesus. I pray that if there'd be anyone here in that position, that you would work that miracle for them. And for the rest of us that do know you, that you would sanctify us and make us a little bit more like Jesus. Humble us through the example of John the Baptist. Teach us through the example of John the Baptist. And most importantly, be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, you ready? Number one, the setting. The setting. Verses 22 through 24. That is the setting. I'll read. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. 
And it says in 23, John was also baptizing. So that's John the Baptist. John the Baptist was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized. And then you've got this cool parenthetical statement in 24. For John had not yet been put in prison. We stop right there. That's the setting. That's the background. That sets the stage for everything else and for what's going on here. When the Passover celebration ended, because that's what we've been looking at, that entire conversation with Nicodemus took place during that week of Passover. When that conversation with Nicodemus ended, when that Passover celebration ended, Jesus and his disciples left the holy city, the temple grounds in Jerusalem, and they went into, it says, the Judean countryside. Jerusalem is in the province of Judea, but they leave the city area and go off into the country. And they came to a place called Anon where they performed baptisms. Now, it's important to note that Jesus himself was not performing these baptisms. These baptisms were being performed by his disciples. I really don't know the nature of these baptisms. We, most of us understand what Christian baptism is. I don't think it was that baptism they were doing. It was maybe more of a preparatory one like John the Baptist. I don't know why they were doing baptisms. It must have been something like John the Baptist. But they were out doing these things, but Jesus was just simply there. Maybe he was overseeing it. I don't know. And if you look over at chapter 4, verse 2, it clearly says that Jesus was not baptizing. It was his disciples that were doing it. They chose Anon as their location because water was plentiful there. In Hebrew, uh, the transliteration of the Hebrew, uh, the Greek word to Hebrew of Anon, it means springs. So this place is literally named springs. So springs means there's got to be a lot of water there. And Anon was near a place called Salim. Both Anon and Salim are in the region known as Beth Sheen. Beth Sheen. Beth Sheen is located 17 miles south of the Sea of Galilee. I'm trying to give you a mental picture of what's playing here. You've got these springs in Beth Sheen down below uh, this gigantic lake, because the Sea of Galilee is really much more like a lake. It's only a tenth the size of Lake Tahoe, but they call it a sea. But this place is strategically located nearly 20 miles to the south of it, and it's a place where there's a lot of water. It is situated at the strategic junction of the Jordan River Valley and the Jezreel Valley. So you've got kind of these two valleys that converge, and you've got this water that's kind of pouring into them. The fertility of the land and abundance of water led the Jewish sages to say this of this area, if the Garden of Eden is in the land of Israel, then its gate is Beth Sheen. So... Right now, I want you to, to picture in your mind a beautiful, lush place, lots of greenery, lots of water, and, and you've got baptisms going on on the Jordan River at this place, literally on both sides of the Jordan River. It says in the text that John the Baptist and his disciples were also baptizing at Anon. So there's the mental picture. You've got Jesus on one side of the river. You've got John on the other. Wouldn't that be interesting to have a church service on one side of the river and another church service on the other side of the river, but they're two different churches? I wonder if one would try to outsing the other. Oh, 
you know, and oh, yeah, it'd be like a competition to see who can love Jesus more. That was weird. Uh, but you've got this playing out. You've got two things happening. To me, it's just like, why do we have two things happening? It says in the text that people were coming out to the countryside to visit both ministries and be baptized. I get the idea there that a lot of the pilgrims that, had, that have come into Jerusalem for the Passover, and it drew in probably about a million people or so on top of the regular population. A lot of these pilgrims probably followed John the Baptist and followed Jesus out of the city into this place to participate or to witness this baptism. So there could have been thousands of people out here. I don't know how many, but if the pilgrims were still in the area, a lot of them would have went out there. Now, if Jesus is on the scene doing his thing, why? and John the Baptist came to launch that ministry with Jesus and to get that thing going, the question that comes to mind with me is, why is John the Baptist still doing his thing? That doesn't make any sense to me. Well, one of the reasons why John the Baptist is still doing his thing is I think he's still trying to point people to Jesus, obviously. But verse 24, the parenthetical statement, one of the reasons why he's still out there doing it is because he hasn't been put in jail yet. It wasn't long after this that he was actually, you know, he called out Herod and and Typus and got his butt thrown in jail for calling him the king of Israel, an adulterer and all that. And he, later on, he ended up getting his head cut off. But I think it's interesting that he's going strong and Jesus is going stronger and they're both kind of doing this thing. Well, one of the reasons is because he hasn't been imprisoned by Antipas. His imprisonment, when John the Baptist went to actual jail, when he was arrested and put in prison in the dungeon at the, at, at the palace of, of Antipas... That led to a very rapid decline in his ministry. He wasn't there to do it anymore. And I think his disciples tried to keep doing his thing, but they weren't him and they weren't as dynamic a preacher or any of that. But as soon as he went to jail, his ministry really started to taper off. It started to decline. And I'll tell you, his tragic execution pretty much killed his ministry. That was it. I mean, it just pretty much killed it off. Pardon the pun. You know, he was beheaded and his ministry was killed off. <laughs> Jokes are not flowing today like wine. Maybe if I had more coffee. It is interesting to ponder, though, that groups of John the Baptist loyalists did exist into the second century. So his ministry may have been killed off when he was, quote-unquote, killed off. But there were some that were still trying to do his thing and preaching his message and still trying to baptize people and all that. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why John the Apostle included testimony from John the Baptist where John the Baptist kept saying, I'm not the Christ, don't follow me. There's no reason why people should have been following his lead 50 years later. It makes no sense at all. That is why his ministry is still going. He's not in jail yet. He's still alive. I think he's still pointing to Jesus. I, I'm not sure exactly how that's all playing out. I think there's another reason why his ministry was still going at this point. doesn't have to do with the fact that he's not in prison or any of that. I, it has plainly to do with unbelief. People were still going to John the Baptist because they were rejecting Jesus and they liked John the Baptist. And that's a fact. His disciples prove it in this text. One of the reasons why people were still going to John the Baptist's church is because they didn't like Jesus. I don't like his preaching style. I don't like the music they do over there. I don't like the way they take the offering. I don't like, 
I don't like his message of dying to self. Forget all that. One of the reasons why his ministry was still going is because people did not believe in the one he pointed to. They rejected the one that he pointed to. They did not believe John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus. If they believed John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus, they would have left John the Baptist and started following Jesus. You remember what Jesus' first disciples did? There's the Lamb of God, John the Baptist says, and John and some of these other guys who became apostles immediately scrammed and started following Jesus. That's what happens, or should happen. Well, that's not the case here. People should have been leaving John the Baptist in droves. They should have already been gone. But they did not believe John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus. You think about it. You, you know, John comes to announce the Messiah. The uh, Messiah is there now. There's no reason to keep coming to John. Maybe to go by and give him a Starbucks. Thank you for telling me about the guy over there on the other side of the river. I'm going to swim over and get baptized. Maybe I'll just stay in the water and call to him. Right? There's no reason to stay with him. The transition is over. Well, there's a reason to stay with him if you don't believe in Jesus. People kept coming to him, to John the Baptist, despite the gospel that he was preaching. They, they liked John's hardcore preaching because he was a fiery, pulpit-pounding, all-or-nothing kind of preacher. You know, he was the, the Spurgeon of his day. He was the Whitfield of his day, right? He was the Joel Osteen of his day. He was not the Joel Osteen of his day. He was the Charles Spurgeon. He was the Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a, a powerful, spirit-filled preacher. He was charismatic, and not in the she left on a Honda speaking tongues way. He was charismatic in that he had charisma. He spoke powerfully because he had a powerful anointing. And people liked his preaching style. People liked his church services. People liked his baptism. But they were not interested in the one to whom he pointed to, the Lamb of God. No, the people that were coming out to John wanted more religion. They wanted more customs and, and more ceremonies, right? That's what religious people do. You know, they, they tend to find Jesus useful. It's Christians that find Jesus beautiful. Religious people aren't really interested in Jesus' message, right? And, and these religious people are coming to John, and John is adding to the list of things they can now do. That's not his intent, but that's how they're perceiving him. They didn't want Jesus. They wanted more religion, more ceremonies. I got baptized. Look at all the things I'm doing. But they didn't want Jesus. They wanted a super cool, super popular rock star preacher from the wilderness. Woo! Hallelujah! That guy can preach. Hallelujah! You know. Trying to get into it, you know, and I don't preach like that. They wanted this rock star, right? They didn't want a Nazarene because nothing good comes from Nazareth. He's soft spoken, he's mellow, he invites us to come to him. His burden is light, blah, blah, blah. Tell us about the fires of hell and what we can get in the water. You know, they, they, they just didn't want Jesus, they don't like Jesus. It just reminds me of many today in the church. They don't want just 
good old-fashioned Bible line-by-line line preaching where you tell somebody about Anon and these things. They didn't, they didn't want those things. They wanted the guy that stands up and he's got spotlights on him and smoke coming up behind him and he's, you know, and he's just getting people ramped up. I'm not doing John the Baptist any good here. That's not who he was, but I tell you, he was one heck of a preacher, one of the best. And I think people wanted that. I want that. They didn't want Jesus. They didn't want Jesus. Religious people want religion. But as I said, none of this was John's fault. He gave people no reason to attach to himself. He didn't. That's where he's different from Joel Osteen and every, everyone else. He just preached the word. And somehow people distorted that and wanted him because he was a rock star who wore weird clothes and ate bugs. He did. He ate locusts and honey. That's just weird. I'd go just to see that. <laughs> Do it, John! <laughs> oh. Now, I want you guys to ponder the sovereignty of God in this scenario. I just want you to be thinking of John and his arrest and these things, because this happened shortly after this. I want you to ponder the sovereignty of God, the providence and sovereignty of God in this scenario. John's arrest and execution led to the diminishment of his ministry, thus allowing the focus to turn more fully onto Jesus. You see, we think of John the Baptist as getting arrested because he said some harsh things about the king and gets thrown in jail. That's all true. But the sovereign God was working behind the scenes to remove the distraction from his son. He'll do that with us. doesn't mean he doesn't love us. If we become a liability, he'll take us to be with him and work through some other means to accomplish his purposes. He does whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. We think of John the Baptist's death as a tragedy, and it is in some ways. But God's sovereignty was behind it. Because as long as he's out doing his thing, people are still coming to him. I think John the Baptist rejoiced over this. His, this text shows us that he was rejoicing over this. And the way he conducted himself when he was in prison is pretty spectacular. You think about it. King Herod's intention was to get rid of the loudmouth and subdue his wife because she was railing against John the Baptist all the time. Okay, honey, I'll kill him. I want to get you off my back. That was his intention. But God's intention was to work through this thing, to put the focus entirely on his son, Jesus Christ. I really believe that John the Baptist trusted in the sovereignty of God. And that's why he didn't complain while he was in jail. He just didn't. He just took it on the chin and went forth and gave up his neck freely. He knew where he would be. Now let's look at the second S, right? The second S. We've already covered the setting. Now we're looking at the situation. Here's what arises in the midst of this situation here. Here's what happens. And we're going to look at this in 25 through 26. It says, Now a discussion arose between some of John, John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And 26, it says, And he came to John, and this is the disciples that came to him, John's disciples. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. This, this statement by them is just 
dripping with anxiety and concern. They are just like, China, you got to do something. At the other baptism site, it appears that some of John's, at John's, we'll say, at John the Baptist's baptism site, it appears that some of John the Baptist's disciples, some who were there serving with John and overseeing things and, and serving the people that were coming, they started an argument with a Jew. It just says a Jew. That's an interesting, you know. They started an argument with a white dude. They started an argument with a brother. I don't understand it. There's no religious connotation there. It's just weird. It's just a Jew. They started an argument. In some of your translations, it says a certain Jew. I don't know which you have. Mine just says a Jew. Some say certain Jew. These disciples started an argument with this certain Jew. It began on doctrinal grounds, the matter of purifying, but soon moved to personal grounds. The matter of purifying, because you see how it says that at the end of 25, right? Over purification. The matter of purification or purifying was important to the Jews. An important facet of who they are as a people. Under the Old Testament law, it was necessary for them to keep themselves ceremonially clean if they were to serve God and please God. Unfortunately, the Pharisees, you know that super religious group that separated themselves from everyone else. They were like the super Jews. You know, they were really at a whole other level. Unfortunately, this group, the Pharisees, added so many extra traditions, man-made traditions to the law, that the observing of the purification rituals and things just became a total burden. They added so many more things to the list that you had to do. It's like, how can I keep up with all this stuff? Now, this certain Jew was there. He had come out from Jerusalem, probably left after the feast ended. He had come out seeking purification, but he did not agree with John the Baptist's views of it. He did not agree with John the Baptist's disciples' view of it. And so they're in a tangle now, and they're debating the theology of it and what purification is or what it should be. They're going back and forth. John the Baptist's disciples are getting frazzled and torqued, and, man, this guy just doesn't get it. You know, they're getting all tweaked out. This certain Jew, I, I believe what happened was he favored the position of Jesus. I do. I think that he favored the position of Jesus because Jesus clearly rejected the excessive purification practices of the Pharisees as well as the non-ascetical ways of John the Baptist. John the Baptist had a particular way of living where he separated himself from culture. The Pharisees did that. They had all the extra things that they added. Jesus wasn't into any of the man-made traditions. He just shirked them and threw them off. In fact, he got in so much trouble with the Pharisees later on for doing this. They wanted to kill him. They hated him. But he just wasn't into all the rituals and things. They were unnecessary. They were burdensome on the people. And Jesus came to liberate people from these sorts of things. And so you've probably got Jesus on one side of the river preaching the gospel, and it doesn't include all these things. You've got John over there on the other side preaching, and it includes some of these facets. And so this, I think this guy was over listening to Jesus. I like what he's preaching. He goes over to the other side of the river, wades over there, and starts interacting with some of those disciples over there and saying, you guys are doing it wrong. What are you talking about? Well, this is not the way the purification works. 
not according to Jesus over there. I don't know how it played out. But this guy shows up at that baptism site. He's got a different theology, and he's mixing it up with John the Baptist's disciples. When the Jew expressed his views, John the Baptist's disciples went after him. They began to argue back and forth. Purification looks like this. No, purification looks like that. The Jew eventually gave up, walked away, and went over to Jesus' site. Okay, these guys don't get it. And this infuriated John's disciples. It, it got them upset. And they decided to go and tell their rabbi. Teacher, that guy over there, right? Think of the classroom, Shannon, right? She's a teacher, you know. They, they literally, that guy leaves and goes over to Jesus' side. They run over to their master. We've got to tell you what's going on here. This guy just came over and this stuff, and they're all going over there, and oh, what are we going to do? That's what's happening here. They went over to their master to tell him what's happening. And I want you to notice something back in the text, right? I want you to notice in verse 26 in the middle how they say, Rabbi, he who is with you. They won't even name Jesus. They don't even say his name. They didn't say Jesus. They could have said Jesus. They knew who Jesus was because it says the one you pointed to earlier in your ministry. They knew who he was. There was no respect, no reverence there for Jesus. None. They wouldn't even say his name. It's like Voldemort, the name you must not say. They wouldn't even say his name. He who was with you across the Jordan, he who is with you. You know, that one that used to hang out with you once in a while and he came over there and you said he was the Lamb of God and those things. You know, that guy you talked about once in a while, that dude, he's over there. John the Baptist was probably like, you mean Jesus? What? Don't say his name. Shh. It's like Voldemort. Harry Potter, it's going to come out in 2,000 years. You'll know what I'm talking about. The refusal to speak Jesus' name shows their lack of faith and uh, just the dislike of Jesus. It's right there. This is not, we just messed up and forgot his name. This is deliberately, they're not saying his name. They don't want to say his name. And it shows that they do not have faith, and it shows that they do not believe in him, and it shows that they have a severe distaste in their mouths for Jesus. The argument with the Jew over purification shows that they rejected Jesus' testimony as well as John's testimony, doesn't it? They're mixing it up with a guy who was probably over there trying to preach the gospel to him, and they just disagreed with what he was saying and went over and had to tell their rabbi. It just This whole thing stinks of unbelief. John's disciples, his closest members, his closest people to him, I'm talking about John the Baptist, the guys closest to him, didn't even believe in the Savior that he believed in. They may have referred to their master as rabbi, but they didn't accept his teaching about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, because that's precisely what John the Baptist taught. They did not believe. They did not believe in the one who purifies, right? We're talking about purification. They did not believe in the one who purifies sinners like you and me through the shedding of his own blood. They didn't believe in that guy. Not only that, they were also... Jealous of Jesus' growing ministry. 
It's not just a distaste for Him or a dislike or a rejection of Him and no faith, no repentance, any of that. It's, it's also, we don't like what He's doing over there. His ministry is surpassing yours in size. Everyone's going to Him. Everyone's leaving our church. They said, look, He's baptizing. Look, they're pointing to Him on the other side. Look over there, the guy that hung out with you for a while, we won't say his name, he, everyone's going to him, including the guy we just argued with who's an idiot because he doesn't believe what we believe. Look, they're all going to him. And people were flocking to Jesus at this point. He did a ton of miracles during Passover in Jerusalem. People were coming to him. And they were leaving John and his disciples are wigged out. The IVP commentary, which I like to turn to on occasion, this has some good things and some things are just dumb. It warns us not to be too harsh with John's disciples at this point. Okay, okay, preacher, we know you're looking at this commentary, but don't go all in on John's disciples. They're good guys. That's kind of what I got out of it. It says, perhaps they were confused about the differences between Jesus and John, wondering whether Jesus was the one, capital O, or not. Now, I think this is possible. It could be that they were wanting to go to Jesus, but they weren't quite certain as to who He is at this point. It could be. Think about what happened with John the Baptist when he was in prison. Did he not doubt? He called people to himself and said, can you go and talk to Jesus and just confirm that He's the Christ? Right? Do you remember that little episode in that? You know what I chalk that up to? I chalk that up to a severe trial which can perpetuate fear and doubt. I don't look at John's lack of faith in that moment and say, cast him off, he's an unbeliever. How many of us have been through something serious and said, God, are you there? For crying out loud, I was in the hospital for five hours the other night. I kept saying Jesus over and over, deliver me from the gallstones or whatever it was I had going the other night. I kept, Jesus, help me, Jesus, help me. He wasn't helping me. Jesus, help me, Jesus, help me. Jesus, give me Norco. Then somebody came out with Norco. <laughs> Hallelujah. An hour and a half later, I was like, I was trying to meet everyone in the ER. Before, I was like, oh. How many of you have been in a situation where you, you maybe, just be honest and transparent, maybe you felt like God has left you. He's abandoned me in the wilderness. Why did I get this cancer? Why did my husband do this? There are things that happen. You can be the most faithful believer in the world, and there are things that can happen, circumstances that can jack you up. And I think when John the Baptist was in jail, he got jacked up. He was facing execution and in, in, in a dank cell and just it, he doubted for a moment he said send somebody to jesus just to confirm think of it like this john the baptist was a, a committed believer but he wasn't perfect you might be a committed believer but you're not perfect in moments of weakness we can be somewhat faithless and I love the fact that God's love grip on us is sovereign and He doesn't let us go no matter what. He just doesn't. When those servants of John went to Jesus to, to you know, confirm if He is the Christ, Jesus said to them, Go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, 
the dead are raised to life and the good news is being preached to the poor. And tell him, tell him this from me. God blesses those who do not turn away because of me. In other words, hold fast, John. Stay in me. Keep believing. Keep believing. Trust, trust me. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 11. And I think that report restored John's confidence in the Lord, and it emboldened him to proclaim the gospel to King Herod. You read in Mark chapter 6, verse 20 in that area, you'll see that, uh, that Herod the king would go down to his prison cell and interact with him and listen to him preach, and he was, enjoyed listening to John the Baptist preach. That's very interesting. John the Baptist was restored. He came back to his senses, but maybe his disciples were teetering on the edge of belief there. They weren't sure about Jesus. Maybe they just flat out rejected him like I think they did, or maybe the IVP is more accurate. They just weren't certain. Well, I'll tell you what, our passage in this passage, in the next section in particular, 27 through 36, John the Baptist was absolutely determined to steer his rebellious or doubtful disciples away from himself toward Jesus. This is the argument that was meant to settle it. This is, these, this is the series of statements that were meant to literally settle the issue. Like John the Baptist is going to tell them straightforward, here is the truth about me, here is the truth about Jesus. I believe this is the moment when John the Baptist shined the brightest. I do. These, these next set of verses, I think this is the moment where he just burned as hot as possible for the Lord Jesus. Now let's look at the third S, the supremacy of Christ, 27 through 36. In this section, John identifies five things about Jesus that set him apart and exalt him above all others, especially John himself. Let's begin with A. A is Christ's supreme position, 27 through 30. Here's John's reply to them. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves, listen to what he says to them. You yourselves bear me witness. He's saying, you've heard me say this over and over And he says that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And he says this, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. I love this statement in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Okay? Now let's just break down this section. It's, it's wonderful. John begins by telling his disciples that he has no control over the size of his ministry because these things are determined by God and they come down from heaven. You're worried about the size of his ministry? You're worried about my ministry shrinking? You're acting like I have the ability to change that. And, and you would think that, well, there's things that a church and pastors can do. They can make things a little more flashy and all that to draw in the masses. Forget about all that nonsense. John is literally saying, this is, it's not me. 
It's, it is granted by heaven. The size of a ministry is determined by God himself. If a ministry is large, God granted it. If a ministry is small, God granted it. If a ministry is large and becomes small, God granted it. If a ministry is small and becomes large, God granted it. God controls the size of all ministries, whether they are biblically sound or apostate. We tend to not think that God packs out Osteen's church, and it's an apostate church. God puts those people in there. He puts people in all churches to serve His purposes across the board. Whether they be purposes that we don't agree with, that somehow in His wisdom make sense, He is in charge of all of it. Because He's sovereign over all things. If we're going to say that God is sovereign, then that must mean that He oversees and controls and brings churches up and down and does all these things, right? If we're going to say, well, He's sovereign over our salvation, but He's not sovereign over the size of our churches. Of course He is. This is something that I've had to learn over the years with our attendance up and down and up and down. And and me being tempted over and over to try different things, to, to bring people in and to draw people in and blah, blah, blah. And I've had to come to terms with this. Thank you, John the Baptist, for telling me why our church does what it does. This does not mean that we aren't diligent, that we aren't Matthew 28, that we aren't going out and preaching the gospel, inviting people. But at the end of the day, the buck stops with God, right? Let me tell you, tremendous pressure is lifted off my shoulders when I begin to realize that. I don't want to get apathetic and lazy. Thank God. Is that the Lord's given me a call. 30 more people are coming through the door in two seconds. Be ready for them. That was a bizarre ring. I'm sorry. I don't, that one just like, I was tractor beam. I should have preached through it. Make sure. No, I don't want it because then it'll do it to me. God controls the size of ministries. He does. It comes down from heaven, whether it's large or small, whether it shrinks and goes away, whether it expands and and gets big. He's he's literally sovereign over all things. And I love what MacArthur, he didn't say this in response to this particular uh, verse, but I remember reading this and maybe even hearing this at a conference I went to years ago. He said this, MacArthur said, Pastors should focus on the depth of their ministries and leave the breadth to God. Don't we have the exact opposite happening in churches today where pastors are frantically concerned about getting people into their churches at any cost? Crosses are offensive. Let's take them down. That'll bring people in. I mean, they'll do anything to get people in churches. You got churches filled with unbelievers. Well, I love having unbelievers in the church. I want them to hear the gospel and get saved, but I don't want a church ran by unbelievers. That's messy. It's messy enough with believers. Put unbelievers in there, you add whiskey to the scenario. It's bad. (laughs) Pastors should focus on the depth, on the teaching and preaching and the doctrine and prayer and those things and let God be concerned about the width and breadth and the size. John reminds... The first thing he says is, this is not me. It's God that does this. His ministry is exploding over there because it's coming from heaven, and mine's going down because it's coming from heaven. He starts with that correction. Then he reminds his disciples of what he's been saying all along. I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. This was his way of saying Jesus is the Christ. His ministry is supposed to increase. He's the Messiah. 
I'm not the Messiah. My ministry ought to be dwindling down and going away. His ought to be exploding. People ought to be flocking to him. That's what he tells them. He further illustrates this point through a wedding parable. In the parable, the groom, pay attention, in the parable, the groom is Jesus, the bride is Israel, and the friend of the bridegroom, that would be the best man, Miles. Remember when you played best man in that wedding recently? The best man or the friend of the bridegroom is John the Baptist. Okay, again, you've got, you've got the groom, Jesus, you've got the bride, Israel, and then you've got the best man, John the Baptist. In an ancient Jewish wedding, and this is why I say this, because this, that's the illustration that's given here. This is the parable. In an ancient Jewish wedding, it was the responsibility of the best man. Now, this is going to sound weird to you, because we don't do this over here. Homie, don't play that in America. Over there, back in these days, it was the responsibility of the best man to make sure that the bride and groom consummated their marriage vows through intercourse. Imagine adding that to one of our wedding ceremonies. (laughs) You're a DJ and a pastor. Can you do that for us too? That's one thing I don't do. I don't want anything to do with that. It sounds crude. It sounds disgusting. It's not crude. It's not disgusting. You put crude and disgusting together, you get disgusting. Shorten it up. It's not bad. It's not wicked. It's actually pretty beautiful. Because you remember, this is the, the era where people literally stayed virgins the whole time. And when they came together, then that virginity bond was broken and all that. So the best man, it was his job to make sure that the bride and groom came together and consummated their marriage vows. Now, they did this shortly after the ceremony, sometimes right after. And remember, weddings back then were about a week long. They weren't one day, okay? And what the best man would do is he would lead them. This is where it, you get clarity, because right now you're thinking, this is weird. He would lead them to a special room. He would seal the entrance, close the, the drape on the tent or on the door on the building, and he would stand outside of the door, not in the room, okay? Weirdness is now removed, although it's kind of weird to have a loiterer. He's outside. It's like, can you go away? He's outside of the room. They consummate. They do their business. You know, that's what married couples do. It's a beautiful act of worship to the Lord. That's what it's supposed to be. Sex is totally distorted, so this is not a bad thing. They do what husbands and wives do on their marriage night. He waits outside for them. And when they come out, he congratulates them, and he shouts the Shema from Deuteronomy or from Leviticus. Deuteronomy 6. You know what the Shema is? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, etc., etc. So he proclaims that as they come out. Then the celebration kind of picks back up, and everyone starts partying again and doing their thing. It's really an interesting uh, part of the ceremony. But it was a necessary and actual part of the ceremony. Here's John's point to his disciples. He's telling his disciples that he's like the best man at a wedding. As the best man, it is his job to make sure that the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, comes together with his bride, Israel. There's the parallel. There's no sexual connotation. Okay, you got it? There's some weight here, isn't there? His job is to make sure that that man and that woman become in, in, in the bonds of marriage in a sense that they are joined together. That's what he's telling his disciples. Think of a wedding, guys. What happens there? Somebody serves as the friend of the bridegroom. He makes sure that after the ceremony, they come. that's what he's telling them. 
It's really fascinating. When John's disciples... And this is why John is thinking, I'm the best man, right? I'm the best man. What a privilege. What an honor to be the best man for this marriage, if you want to call it that. When the disciples told him that more people were going to Jesus, he flat out rejoices. He feels like his job is done. The people are going to him. I've done my job as the best man. That's the way he's thinking. That's his mindset here. He literally, this is why after he gets done telling them the parable and putting himself in it, this is why he literally bursts forth and declares, this joy of mine is now complete. I've done my job as the best man. I have worked to join the husband with his bride, Israel. That's why he rejoices. And he follows that statement of rejoicing his joy is full it's like his joy wasn't full before this moment now that he hears that people are actually going to jesus now is the best man he's super pumped but he follows it with this other incredible statement guys he must increase i must decrease this was his way of saying i'm not the center of attention at a wedding the bride and groom are he must increase but i must decrease isn't that beautiful? I love John the Baptist. This guy is awesome, man. He is seriously awesome. He not only preaches the truth to them right here, but he shows them what true humility looks like. So willing to take the back seat just to play the role as a best man. A super preacher in his day, too. You would, you would be hard-pressed to find one as humble as John the Baptist back then. Ultimately, what he shows here is he shows Christ's supreme position as Christ and as the bridegroom, doesn't he? That is his supreme position. Guys, I'm just this. He is this. He is this. That's what he's doing. B, Christ's supreme place of origin, 31A. He says this, he who comes from above, is above all. John further illustrates the supremacy of Christ by identifying His place of origin. Above refers to what? Heaven. Heaven is higher than the earth. Heaven is above the earth. Heaven is the dwelling place of God, right? Since Jesus is from above, since He is from heaven, He is Higher than John. That's John's point. The reason why his ministry is exploding and mine's dwindling is because he's above me. He's the Christ. He's the bridegroom. He's above me. He's from heaven, guys. I'm from here. I'm like you. That's what he's saying. I, I love, he just takes it further by saying he's above all. It's not just that he's, a, you know, he's just above me in a sense. He's, he's above all. And that above all, I put it in quotations. You can underline it in your Bibles. It is a reference to the, the deity and lordship of Jesus Christ. How can Jesus be above all as God and as Lord over all? That's how. So he's just building here. He's just building. See, Christ's supreme preaching. Christ came with a superior message. Verses 31b through 34. He says, he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. 
Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. John draws a contrast between his preaching and the preaching of Christ right here. John was a phenomenal preacher, one of the all-time best, no doubt, probably in the top ten of all time. But he wasn't a perfect preacher because he did not possess perfect knowledge or a perfect ability to delineate or preach the truth. You know, our, we might be very eloquent and very well-spoken, but we don't have perfect speech because we're fallen humanity. And we certainly don't have perfect knowledge. Jesus, on the other hand, has perfect knowledge and the perfect ability to proclaim that knowledge and that wisdom. He was, John was from the earth, right? He says, he who belongs to the earth speaks in an earthly way. He was from the earth, therefore he has earthly limitations, All of us who are from the earth have the the limitations of the earth. We can only go so far as our flesh allows us to go. His knowledge was limited. Our knowledge is limited. His speech was limited. Even his anointing with the Spirit was limited. Jesus, however, is from heaven. Jesus, however, is God. Jesus is, therefore, limitless in his knowledge and ability. Jesus alone is the perfect preacher because he alone possesses perfect knowledge and skill to deliver the truth. Why on earth, if you got Jesus preaching over here in John, why would you leave Jesus to go listen to this guy? That's incredible to me. You know how? You don't have the Spirit and you're not saved. Because I don't even know if that works because you've got to have something to work with John the Baptist's preaching. But I'm just thinking, man, I'm a believer. I've been one for 15 years. If I had an opportunity to go sit and listen to John the Baptist preaching, I'd take it in a heartbeat. But if Jesus was doing the next night, I'd wait. Or if they were doing the same night, I'd go to Jesus. I can't wait to hear his words with my own ears. I hear his voice. I hear his words. His sheep know his voice. But I can't wait to hear him speak directly to me in an audible fashion. And that will come when I'm in His presence. I would go listen to Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? You've got your favorite preachers and you think, well, I'd like to go hear this person or that person. What if you had an opportunity to go listen to Jesus preach? Would you go? Would you go? I don't know, man. I've got, I've got to do my hair that night. He is the perfect preacher because he possesses perfect knowledge and skill. Jesus bore witness to what he has seen and heard. That's a reference to God's plan of salvation. Jesus not only saw and heard, he is instrumental in the construction of that plan. He is a member of the Holy Trinity. And in the councils of eternity, the Holy Trinity came together and and, and described and defined what they were going to do and how the Father was going to play a role in salvation, how the Son was going to play a role in salvation, how the Holy Spirit was going to play a role in in salvation. He, He doesn't just see and hear and know that way. He is God and He knows and He's a participant in our salvation. That's what John is saying. He's from, I speak in an earthly way. He's from above. He speaks in a heavenly way with perfect knowledge. Why would you want to keep coming to listen to me when you can have him? That's what he's saying. 
But what does John warn? He says people did not receive his testimony. That means they rejected Jesus' teaching. They rejected his message, the gospel that he preached. And guess what? John's disciples were guilty of this, weren't they? They were. And it says, but those who did receive his testimony, John the Baptist, etc., declare what about God? God is true. They hear Jesus, that's the truth. God the Father, God is true. That's how they respond. He's speaking truth. God is right. God is accurate. God is true. That's how we respond, right? We, we basically do two things. We affirm two things about Jesus. We, first of all, we affirm that God is true, but there's two more things that follow John the Baptist lists here. First, we, we affirm that Jesus utters the words of God. He comes down from heaven. He was sent from heaven as God to utter the words of God, that perfect knowledge of salvation and how it's going down and what we must do and how we must reply. That's the first thing. They utter the, he utters the words of God. When Jesus speaks, he utters the words of God. Revelation happens. Second, and that's a closed revelation, by the way. It's not still happening. This is perfect. Second, they affirm that he has been anointed with the Spirit without measure. Jesus had the Holy Spirit without measure. Do you remember at his baptism, the Spirit came down and rested upon him? John the Baptist witnessed that happen. And the Spirit was on Jesus and stayed on Jesus during his whole ministry in full measure. This is how, in a sense, Jesus can proclaim the truth perfectly. This is how people can understand the truth is through the anointing of the Holy Spirit because truth is spiritually discerned. He he utters the words of God and he has the spirit without measure. In fact, that's how he utters these words of God. And I'm talking about Jesus from a human standpoint here in his incarnation. The anointing and all of that applies to his humanity, but his deity is separate from that. John's disciples would have understood what John meant here. They would have understood that apart from the Holy Spirit, there is no uttering of the words of God or divine revelation. John basically tells them that they can trust Jesus is preaching because he has the Spirit without measure, because he is from above, because he is the bridegroom, because he is the Christ. You can go listen to him and listen to him in all joy because he's it. He's the man. Go listen to him. He's God. He's all of this. He's what we've been waiting for. That's what he says. That is an example of Christ's supreme preaching, the perfect knowledge, the full anointing, uttering the words of God. Spectacular. This is John the Baptist's testimony, guys. D, Christ's supreme authority. We're getting close to the end. Christ's supreme authority. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. John tells his disciples what he witnessed at Jesus' baptism where the Father declared his love for the Son. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. He wanted his disciples to see the connection between the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. The connection between them affirms the deity and messiahship of Jesus. He then points to Jesus' supreme authority. The Father not only loves Jesus the Son, He also has given all things into His hand. In other words, established His Lordship. He's above all. 
This is why you can trust his preaching. This is why you should leave me and go to him. John wants his disciples to take Jesus seriously. And this is why he begins to wrap up with the lordship of Jesus. Because if they fail to take his last testimony and fail to take Jesus seriously, it will result in their own destruction. Now let's look at the last point. E, Christ's supreme mercy. I put it like this, His supreme mercy. Verse 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John wants his disciples to know that Jesus is merciful and willing to give them eternal life. He tells them that if they want eternal life, they must believe in Him or receive Him by faith, right? Whoever believes in the Son. What is faith? What is belief? It is knowledge in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is conviction. That's belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it is trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Knowledge, conviction, and trust. We're putting everything we've got into Jesus. But if they are unwilling to receive the mercy and believe, if they are unwilling to do that, they will not see life and the wrath of God remains on them. You see, it's not that the wrath of God comes on them, it stays on them. And all those who are outside of Christ, the wrath of God is already upon them. And it will become manifest at some point. This is the time of, of, of mercy. We're in a disposition of mercy and grace. This is the time to turn away from our sin and believe in Jesus. We shouldn't tarry. We shouldn't wait. John's imploring them, believe in the Son. He is merciful and gives eternal life. If you don't, you remain under God's wrath. That must have come as a surprise to them, as religious as they were. We're under the wrath of God? Yeah. Yeah, you are. And I don't want to see you come to your end. And I don't want to see that manifested. Believe in Him. He's imploring them. He's begging them to believe. Turn away from me. Go to the other side of the river. What a farewell testimony, huh? 